from Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suck The number one award-seeking comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast podcaster, Mark Hershaw. Yes, it's me. It's always me, Mark Hershon, host and babysitter for Epi 95 of Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. Just four more shows after this one, and we hit Epi 100, the last show of the first season of Suckatash. That's right. Seasons in podcasting seem a little silly to me because it's all quite arbitrary, so I figured after almost three years and 100 episodes, we'll make that the end of season one for this show. I'm still trying to figure out if I have it together enough to do a live show somewhere for the 100th episode. Don't know. We'll see. Maybe. I've also been talking with our associate producer, Tyson Saner, or messaging him more precisely, about a couple of format changes that Succotash is in for in the second season of the show. I'll tell you more about that soon. Nothing major in terms of what you hear. Just going to tighten the struts up on this rust heap a little bit and see if we can't keep it flying a little longer. We have a few comedy podcast clips to share with you this episode, but the main attraction is my interview with comic magician the amazing Jonathan. He recently announced his retirement from performing on stage live, and we'll find out why coming up in just a little bit. Once upon a time, I was the head writer on a short-lived game show called Ruckus for Merv Griffin Productions, and the amazing Jonathan was the host. For a little taste of our upcoming chat, here's Jonathan recounting how we handled complaint letters to the show. And every show had food that we would ruin, and then finally we got so many letters of complaint that we were wasting so much food that Merv made, made us stop writing food gags. Do you remember Do you remember the letters of complaint we sent out? We got in trouble? With the quarters? Yes, we would, people would complain, and we'd tape a quarter to a piece of paper and say, call someone who gives a fuck. And Murr found out about that, remember, and he came out. And another one, we, we, we blew up, we tape a needle to it and said, cry, baby, cry, stick a needle in your eye. And we were sending those out. It's a fun, revealing interview I have with Jonathan, only not so fun when he gets to the part about his current health condition. Now he may not have much longer to live. Yeah, really. Uh, some of this he covered in a recent interview on WTF with Mark Marin, but we talk about some other stuff he didn't get to in that chat. This next week, our friends Dean Haglin and Phil Lairness have a special live party cast of their Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, or rather, your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, and it's being held in a secret location the night before the third annual Los Angeles Podcast Festival kicks off. It's sort of like how Slam Dance happens adjacent to the Sundance Film Festival. They mentioned it in last week's episode about the same time they mentioned us. Hmm. One of our uh, guests who ought to be in full effect uh, there will be Mark Hershon. Wow. Who is coming down for PodFest. Right. And this was kind of the inspiration behind this because PodFest is this three-day event where uh, you get to pay to come and see... The sh- show you listen you, for free. You, yeah, <laughs> the show you get for free every other week of the year. Right, but then you get to see it. Yeah, so anyway, and we did this last year, and anyway, it just seemed like, you know, uh, what we do is free. So let's do a free show, but (laughs) let's take the idea of this and let's turn this into a a celebration and a party. So it should be a lot of fun. Uh, Mark Hershon, uh, of course, host of Succotash, who apparently, if what I hear is true, and, and the rumors are always true, you know this. I do. Excerpted a particularly lengthy passage 
from uh, Chill Pack Hollywood on the current episode of really? Succotash. Succotash. And I've heard that there might be a slight change in format coming up for Succotash. Really? Yeah. What will that be, I wonder? And not only that, but I might be having a, a meeting very soon about producing another podcast. <laughs> you? So there's a lot of news uh, in the uh, podcasting world. If you email them at chillpackhollywood at yahoo.com, you still might be able to wrangle an invite out of them. And please do listen to their show at chillpackhollywood.com and Blog Talk Radio. Got a call on the Succotash hotline this past week from Randy of the Infotainment Podcast. Hi, this is Randy. Uh, yes, I'm a comedy uh, um, podcaster, and my info is uh, uh, infotainment is the name of the show. And it's available at uh, infotainmentpodcast.com if you'd like to do something with it. It's about a half-hour comedy show, uh, audio only. Thank you. Bye. So check Randy and his show out. And the offer remains open to comedy podcasters and listeners alike. If there is a show you'd like us to know about, call the Succotash hotline anytime at area code 818-921-7212. Operators are standing by. In addition to the clips and interview with our special guest, The Amazing Jonathan, we have a new Burst O'Durst segment with comedian and social commentator Will Durst, a classic Henderson's Pants commercial, our Tweet Sack segment, and this. The 10 most active shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast List. Nowhere else in podcast land are you likely to hear a list featuring the 10 most active shows on some other list, but we do have it for you here. Here are the shows that moved up or down the most in the past week on Stitcher's Top 100 Comedy Podcast List. Now, some weeks we get big, massive swings in the numbers, other weeks, not so much. Mostly single-digit moves this week, with a couple of exceptions. At number eight, Smodcast, Tell em Steve Dave, is up six places, putting it back up in the top ten. At 22, The Bugle, with John Oliver and Andy Zaltzman, is up eight places. I think the fact that John Oliver's show on HBO is getting a lot of attention has been helping The Bugle move up the charts. At 26, Judge John Hodgman is down ten spots. At 32, Burt Cast's podcast is up 10 places. At 46, the Christopher Titus podcast is up 6 places. At 47, Off the Air with Chick McGee, down 7 places. Uh, coming in at 68, Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine is up... Oh no, they're down 7 places. Sorry about that. At 81, You Talking You Two to Me is up 30 places. New podcast there, You Talking You Two to Me. They've uh, jumped up 30 places, putting them into the top 100. At 90, DVD ASA with David Choey and Asa Akira is down 12 places. And at 95, By the Way in Conversation with Jeff Garland has dropped 7 places. As much as I get kind of a kick out of this feature, the 10 most active shows, we may need to trim some fat if we move to a shorter show in a few episodes. That's kind of my plan. So this could be on the chopping block. Do you like the 10 most active? Enough to keep it in the show? Call me on the Succotash hotline, 818-921-7212. Leave a message. Let me know if you enjoy this feature. I'll leave it in the show. You can also drop an email to markmarc at succotashshow.com and let me know how you feel about it. And that has been your... The 10 most active shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast List.
Let's get into some quality clippage before we get to the amazing Jonathan interview. This past week, I reviewed Greg Proops's podcast for This Week in Comedy Podcasts column on Splitsider.com. Then I shaved that interview off and put it up on Huffington Post as well. And I'm not talking about Greg Proops's Smartest Man in the World podcast. Did you know he has a second podcast? What? Uh, it's called Greg Proops's Film Club. It's a once-a-month movie screening of something that Greg likes and the most recent one was The Man Who Would Be King. The film stars Sean Connery and Michael Caine at their most dashing. But in the segment we're about to listen to, Proops goes off on a tangent about spending teenage nights at the local drive-in movie theater. Um, in any case, uh, this is Sean Connery's favorite movie. I mean, uh, Michael Caine's favorite movie, so he says. I wanted to read it. It wasn't a big hit on the ear. I saw it in the drive-in with my friend Leon Rossi. We got high, and we loved it. We cried at the end. We were like 16. We were embarrassed in the car together, right? In those days, you had the big speaker that hung on the window that could totally break the window because it weighed so much, and the thing was so precarious. If anyone remembers, one guy remembers this. One guy, one guy burst out in what can only be described as a guffaw. And he went, Pah! Uh, Because it's true. The, the, the speakers that you put in your car at the drive-in theater were attached by a giant black cord that was sometimes quite frayed uh, that was attached to a post that came out of the ground on a hillock next to your vehicle. You parked on a hillock and there was a small hillock next to you with a thing and you reached out and, and then you reached out and got it and you put it on your window and then you very slowly because if you slammed it down you'd break the goddamn window. And it only had one control a rusty dial that had never worked and so you'd twist it and it would go, uh, uh, go. <laughs> That was what the previews were like. They, they skipped around a lot. They showed from the time I started high school till the time I graduated, four, seven and a half years later, they showed the same... Uh, uh, during the interval, at the, uh, during the, inter- the interval, I'm, from, I'm, originally, I'm originally from Wales. During the intermission, uh, they, they would show... Uh, you know, they, let's let's all go to the lobby and all that, you know, and and we and everybody fuck off to the lobby. And um, but uh, they would also show it's only rock and roll. Someone had made a film of the Stones. It's only rock and roll, like a little two minute promo thing where like they'd go the Rolling Stones and it would go ah no, it's only rock. And then like a bird would fly at the screen and shit. And then wow, and it was like Rolling Stones and it, and it was a little hit of rock. And we all I remember digging it every time. Four years. Five years? The album had come out and gone way... I mean, we were into some girls by the time they stopped showing this fucking thing. You know, we might have been into Emotional Rescue. It showed that long. At the, but I always felt like they thought, fuck it, I love this. Like, whoever was the projector, you know, he's been there for like... I'm picturing a dude smoking a fucking, you know, like, uh, water pipe filled with 151 rum in the shape of a turtle. And he's got, you know, like, right? Like Cheech and Chong hair and, yeah... You know, a headband and like, he's, man, I got to change the reels on Mecha Godzilla. You can catch both of Greg Proops' podcasts at gregproops.com, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and a lot of other places where podcasts can be streamed and or downloaded. 
we recently got hit up to revisit the PF's Tape Recorder podcast hosted by P.F. Wilson and to check out a recent episode featuring the Sklar Brothers, very funny comedians and hosts of the Sklarborough Country and Sklarborough County podcasts. P.F. wanted us to pay particularly close attention to his It's Facebook, Not Factbook part of that episode, so here it is. It's time for another installment of... It's Facebook, not Factbook. Came across a strange one this week. A uh, high school classmate of mine posted a picture uh, which he shared from somebody else, and it is a picture of a woman named Alex Israel. She is a, a friend of Adam Lanza, who was the uh, shooter in the Newtown uh, situation there back a couple of years ago. And then below that is a picture of Katie Foley, who is a sister of the journalist who was killed a couple of weeks ago in Iraq. And he, the pictures are on one on top of the other. And it's supposed to uh, suggest to you that these are actually the same person, because what these are, these are called crisis actors. And I had never heard this term before until I saw this photo. Yes, uh, crisis actors. Well, the the picture that this woman originally shared, and then my classmate uh, reshared, says the majority of the big news stories you see on TV are all faked. They use crisis actors. Below is a recent example, and then there's the picture. So um, if you look at this photo and then you go to YouTube and you look at you know the, the two women talking, yeah, they look a lot alike, but they are not the same person. However, uh, a lot of people really buy into this, uh, like this guy, for example. This is Miss Israel from Sandy Hook. Remember? I was actually uh, not around for those videos. I, I hadn't been yes. started on all this stuff yet. Um, but I want you to pay very close attention to her facial features. Okay, dude goes on and on about this and tries to convince you that it's the same woman. And uh, it, it's, it's not. Okay, that's enough, dude. Now, I did find one guy uh, who believes that the Newtown, Connecticut shootings were staged and everyone involved uh, was an actor, but he doesn't believe these two women are the same person because, you know, he's not crazy. Now, I get why people buy into this, because there's a kernel of believability to this, because something similar to this has happened before. Jason Blair had been a rising star during a nearly four-year career at the New York Times, but in the spring of 2003, it became clear he had plagiarized or outright fabricated dozens of stories he'd allegedly written for the paper. He lifted passages from other people's work. He pretended to visit cities he never traveled to and wrote about information from confidential sources that did not exist. And then there was the lady from the Washington Post who made up a whole story about an eight-year-old heroin addict. But these two journalists were acting on their own and not as some operatives of the New World Order. The crisis actor thing, of course, is part of a larger conspiracy, you see. One that also has a kernel of believability because of, well, things like this. The American military were also experimenting with LSD as a potential weapon. Here is a group of normal soldiers responding correctly to a series of routine drill commands. After receiving a small dose of LSD, they're confused and undisciplined. Wait, the U.S. military tested LSD on its own soldiers? Yeah. And then there's also this. And what most Chileans did not know in 1973, and what many Americans still do not know, was that the coup of September 11th, 1973, was the work of intelligence operatives, American intelligence operatives, and they took their orders directly from the White House. That was Colorado School of Mining professor Kenneth Osgood on C-SPAN's American History TV discussing the 1973 military coup in Chile. And, of course, then there's this. With respect to 9-11, of course, you've had the um, uh, story that's been public out there, the checks uh, alleged that uh, Mohammed Atta, the lead attacker, met uh, in Prague with a senior Iraqi intelligence official five months before the attack. 
former Vice President Dick Cheney lying about al-Qaeda's connection to the 9-11 attacks. So, uh, yes, nefarious things go on. Governments, uh, at the behest of large corporations and other power brokers, do make stuff up and, you know, are up to, you know, some pretty sneaky things at times. But these things make sense. They made this stuff up about Iraq because they wanted the oil. That makes sense. Uh, you know, why they would, the 9-11 conspiracy, let me address that for a second. I don't buy into that one because as evil as Bush and Cheney are, uh, first of all, I don't think they had the competence to pull something like that off and make it stick, one. And two, why would they bother going into Afghanistan, a country with absolutely no monetary value whatsoever, and a place where the second most powerful superpower on earth was stuck in a quagmire for years and years? Why, why wouldn't they just pin 9-11 on Iraq to begin with, which is the war they wanted even before the towers were hit. They came into office, I believe, in my opinion, really wanting to go to war with Iraq. Maybe Iran, maybe both. Who knows? But they definitely did not want Afghanistan. So anyway, getting back to the uh, the uh, crisis actor situation is, uh, the conspiracy, like I said, has to make sense. These mass shootings are staged, you see, because President Obama wants to take your guns away. And so far, that's working great. That's a little hit off of P.F. Wilson's tape recorder podcast. Thanks to our associate producer, Tyson Sainer, for clipping that for us. You can get full episodes at P.F.'s home site, which is pfradio.podbean.com. I saw on the Independent Podcaster Association page on Facebook, that's a, a little page that Adam Spiegelman from Proudly Resents uh, really kind of administrates for a whole bunch of podcasters. And we just sort of talk about oh, all sorts of things, technology and how to get guests and things like that. It's not really a place to plug your podcast, but uh, I did see that the Geek Generation podcast has just hit its 200th episode. So congratulations, Joe Q the Fanfare. Congrats to host Rob Logan and his co-host Mike Volpe. 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 Ah. I can never remember. These guys love talking about movies, TV shows, video games, pretty much anything their audience enjoys geeking out over because they enjoy geeking out over it, too. Now, here's a snippet from Big Epi 200 where they get into Oreos. I'm I mean, loving Oreos like I don't know where, when they decided that this marketing idea of coming up with all the limited edition flavors yeah, it's was a, great a thing. Move it's working because it's limited edition, mm -hmm. which makes you go, if I don't get it right now. I might not get it next week. Right, right. So I have to buy this now. I've seen some limited editions kind of hanging around, though, a little yeah. longer. Like the cookie dough ones are still available. They are. And they that still say limited, limited edition. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I just bought another package of well, limeade ones. Limited could be five years. Right, right, right. Who yeah. knows what that range actually is. I did buy more limeade ones because, I, like I had mentioned to you, I Those don't think I said it on the air. I'm going to try making a cherry limeade yeah. Oreo. So I'm going to take some white chocolate and put some cherry oil in there. And then coat them with that because I think that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. And there's another flavor that I never could find, which was the root beer Oreos. That, like a root beer float flavor? Yeah, like a root beer float or root beer That's Oreo. Cool. And I just couldn't find them anywhere. Yeah. And I've been able to find every other limited edition that they have. And they did just announce a pumpkin spice Oreo. Nice. Which I'm telling you because I probably won't buy it because I'm not into Is pumpkin, the pumpkin stuff. spice with a white cookie or a chocolate cookie? White cookie. Yeah. They seem to be doing a lot of them with the white because it they, gives them more options. Yeah. Because it's kind of a neutral flavor, whereas the chocolate limits them to things that work well with chocolate. Um, one one that, that I would like to see them try if they're going to do that and keep a chocolate cookie is maybe like a cherry chocolate. Oh, I think that would a be chocolate interesting. covered cherry right, flavor. That kind of That'd idea. Be but the one that they have coming out now that I have with me is definitely in the realm of the season. Oh. So when you're thinking Halloween, what kind of things do you think of? 
uh, well, first pumpkin. Right. Which pumpkin spice we had said is on the way. I would think an apple flavor uh-huh. or perhaps carrot cake type flavor. Stay where you were. Like an apple. What kind of an apple? Like a apple spice. Sour apple. Close. I think specifically Halloween and what you might do with an apple. Candy apple. Close. What is that? Caramel, caramel apple. apple. Candy apple. Yeah, same yeah. idea. So oh, we got cool. caramel apple. Which Oreos. is cool because I can't eat a caramel apple because I'm allergic to the apple. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> My life sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so the cream inside is Look at uh, that. visually it looks like half so it's caramel another white and half cookie. green. Yep. And it's, yeah, it's like um, it looks like they dyed it so that it's a yin yang shape. Right, right. I, so I will try. I can eat probably two and be some fine. Some of these things are becoming a little more difficult to open. So we got a couple uh, there for you. Ooh, smell them as soon as I opened it. They're good about that, too. The fragrance yeah. is really nice on a lot of yeah. these. Apple's a great flavor. It is. How come you now? Why aren't you such a pumpkin fan? You just I never just were? don't care for the flavor that much. No. That being said, though, I did really enjoy the um, the donuts that you and Ashley made that mm-hmm. have the pumpkin spice protein in it. These are good. I'm eating them the way that I shouldn't when wow. I'm taste testing, yeah. but. Wow. I always have to put two together. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. It really does taste like a caramel apple or a caramel apple. How do you say it? When I'm talking about caramel apple, I think of caramel apple. In this instance, I would say caramel. Mm-hmm. No. It's mm. really good. You can taste it. It tastes like you bit into a green, oh, like a Granny Smith apple. That's not bad. The apple has a little bit of a banana y taste. Yeah. The apple's well, slightly off, but. At least to me. I see what you're saying. Mm. It is almost like a banana. Mm. Like an overly ripe banana taste. Which makes me not like it as much as I could. They're good. Not bad. See, I hate bananas. It's one of those foods I just despise. Yeah. So that little bit of banana e kind of ruins it a little bit for me. I like banana. I was thinking if they do a peanut butter banana flavored mm. Cario. That's not bad, though. That's pretty good. They're really... Is this a new wave, like, over the last year or two that they've done these seasonal All these different thing? flavors? I think it's, like, within the last year or so. They're really going nuts. They really are. You can find past episodes of The Geek Generation as well as current and future epis, too, at their home site, thegeekgeneration.com. What could be easier? Just a couple of more items of business to get to before we jump into my interview with this episode's special guest, the amazing Jonathan. First up is a word from our illustrious sponsor. Hello, friends. It's that time again. But then again, isn't it always that time? That time when you need a favor from a friend or acquaintance who is just a little bit better placed than you on the food chain? Well, nothing says, lend me a hand, better than a pair of Henderson's Pear Sucker Pants. That's right. I said Pear Sucker. Because although these high-quality trousers are made of 100% seersucker for a durable, comfortable wear, it's the little extras that your friends in high places are going to notice, setting you apart from the rest of the toadies right away. They'll see the built-in knee pads and scuff-proof finish right away. Upon closer inspection, they're bound to notice the breakaway codpiece and retractable cheek flaps. 
Finally, the Peer Sucker Recessed Hip Mounted Ashtray and Beverage Caddy will put you over the top when it comes to being their A number one choice when it's time to be voted most likely to earn their favor the hard way. Originally designed for the boys in the mailroom, the males in the boys' room, and the boars in the boardroom, Henderson's Peer Sucker Pants are available wherever people are working hard to claw their way to the middle. That's Henderson's turning out pants like they're going out of style, which they usually are, since 1904, and now back to Succotash. Thank you very much, Bill Haywatt. It is officially Tweet Sack time. Hello, Tweety. Uh, we've got a few things kicking around in the old sack, I think. Let's have a look in here. Been having a direct mail exchange on Twitter with at Harry Humor New York, or NY. I just sent him off a couple of our Succotash zipper pulls for him and his daughter. Harry's been listening to the show for a while and uh, gives us uh, some Twitter love, which is nice. He's a comedian in New York. He wanted to know if I was interested in having him help generate some material for this show. You know, the stuff we do in between the clips? Now, I never really thought about it before. I mean, we have our associate producer, Tyson Sainer, finding clips for the show. We have our engineer producer, Joe Polino, helping out with bits and music stingers and things such as that. Even Bill Haywatt does his part. And, of course, we have our musical director, Scott Carvey. Now, I never really thought about it, but uh, now that you're asking, Harry, we'll see what we can do about folding you into the Succotash team. First off, of course, you've got to start wearing some Henderson's pants and expect to be paid absolutely nothing. Just sent another couple of zipper pulls down to Sabrina Miller in the San Diego area if you're going to be in the L.A. area. Next weekend, particularly in the area of the L.A. Podfest, I will have zipper pulls and magnetic buttons with me. You can probably find me wandering around. I'll have a Succotash t-shirt on, and I will be set up in the Squarespace Podcast Lab for as much of the time as they'll let me. They might chase me away because you're only allowed to be in there for certain times of the day and for certain lengths of time. At least that's what they did last year. Who knows? Now, just before we climb back out of the tweet sack and into my chat with the amazing Jonathan, here's a list of the people who have tweeted, retweeted, favorited, followed, DM'd, or somehow mentioned Succotash Show on Twitter this past week. Awesome Talk TV, Gunner Gunner, Breaking Tempo, Wire Tech Girl, Screams and Moans, Amish Baby Machine, Gabriel Diani, Dr. Norman Trousers, Salty Language Podcast, Nugnar Gang, Illusionoid, Rob Erica 2010, Sidepicks, Revelstoke Jim, Dave Weasel, My Name is Razzle 2, Tiny Odd Conversations. Oh, by the way, Travis and Brandy Clark, the hosts of TalkPod, have announced that they're going to be cutting back to just two shows a month because life is getting so darn busy, they, uh, they need to kind of cut back. So, so there you go. So keep listening, though, for God's sake. Solid Cat Podcast, The Hafrican 81, Beardy Leroy, Cranky Mom of Two, Possible 411, The Angry Ginger, Evelyn R. Flores, Sky All Violet, Gret Binchleaf, who's a fictional character out of the minds of Rufus and Howard at the Man by, pa- Man by Cow podcast. So that's cool. Thanks, Gret. Uh, podcast Whore, Lakeside Pat, The Guy Elliot, Brandon Grider, Small Town Bringdown, Lunchbox Network, Chris Break Show, Brick Shithouse Media, Pe- uh, Peaches and Hot Sauce, AT&T Kid, Hanging Outcast, Wheelbarrow Full of Dicks, Unusual Suspects, Rudy Reber, Trill King, Shrin666, Kim Cormack, Lady to Lady, 
Ella James, Greg Proops, Rakesh Setyal, Bridget Renshaw, Brian, oh no, yeah, Brian Pladu, Sharon Houston, Joey Fontana III, Michael Avila Jr., Nani Poo, Ask Hicker Grimes, Bo Skew, Insomnia Gone Wild, Sideshow Network, Van Full of Candy, uh, Juan Manuel Rocha, Robin Forever, Wrong Foot Podcast, Patrick Green, Level 7 Access, Mary Mary A Bit Contrary, Bang Popcorn, Dave Nelson, Nellie Monroe, The Closter, The Pod Mafia, Daily Show John, Adam and JP, Frost of Ankh, and Badger's Briefcase. Man, that is quite an assemblage of uh, handles this week. That's it. Tweet sack empty. If you mention Succotash Show in your tweet, uh, or tweet to us directly with your questions, comments, and suggestions for comedy podcasts for us to feature on the show, I'll mention you here. I also read emails in the tweet sack sh- in the tweet sack section too, so you can send along notes, clips, and pics to Mark M A R C at SuccotashShow.com. This is Travis Clark and Brandy Clark from Tiny Odd Conversations, and you're listening to Succotash, the pod. A comedy podcast podcast. I had heard the amazing Jonathan on Mark Maron's WTF podcast. A great interview, by the way. If you didn't hear it, think about tracking it down over at WTFpod.com. But because I've known Jonathan for years, I figured it might be neat to get him on here to chat, and we'd no doubt find other things to talk about, which we did. Uh, so, Jonathan, you are, uh, you're in Las Vegas, is that true? I am in Las Vegas. Yes, I am. Uh, uh, I have a house in Los Angeles. I haven't got rid of, but uh, I'm here most of the time. Okay, we have not spoken in God. It's got to be twenty years. I'm going to say. Oh, <laughs> which is still on YouTube. Thank I know. Damn, thing's still on YouTube. I know. I, I don't know if I uploaded that one. I, I've uploaded two Ruckus clips. I think that might have been one of my favorites. <laughs> the ultimate blindfold. Yeah, that was great. I, if they didn't know you were a stooge <laughs> at that point, then they must have lived in New Jersey. Do <laughs> you remember how, how, how stupid some of the people, not all the people, but most of the people in New Jersey were the questions we had to write for that, that game show? Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding? That was unbelievable. And, uh, I, remember, I remember one lady's, uh, the question was, uh, skull and crossbones on the side of a bottle means what? She, remember? Yeah, what was her answer? Pirates. <laughs> <laughs> My Lord, how many people have been poisoned in New Jersey because they thought pirates were, were coming in? Oh my God! And I, I still have people who can't believe that uh, Michael Davies was our uh, our contestant screener, the guy who ended up running Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now he's on ABC or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Had 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 I known, I'd been a lot nicer to the guy. As as would I. <laughs> mm-hmm. You were you were really good friends with him. I just thought he was a contestant. I was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> But, I talked to him. I talked, I talked to him after he became uh, really, really rich and famous. And, oh, you, uh, you did? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, all I said to him was, uh, can I get Michael on the phone? <laughs> and, you know, he, he, he was real nice. He was real cordial about uh, 
me blowing them off <laughs> all, for all of two minutes. <laughs> well, you know, I'm uh, I'm still friends with uh, Bert Wheeler, who was our producer on that show. I don't I don't remember uh, Bert Wheeler, who we used to refer to as Bullweed, uh, kind of uh, look kind of look like the devil. I don't remember him, um, but uh, yeah, he was. Uh, I remember Bert. We are. <laughs> no, no, doesn't ring a bell. Herb <laughs> Griffin. No. no. Nothing familiar there. But uh, you did I tell you I saw Merv after that whole thing? Oh, you did. Yeah, I was at Beverly Hills having lunch. Um, Beverly Hills Hilton, where which he owns, and I was having lunch with my mom and her friend, and he was at the table uh, outside at that buffet. Remember? Yes. Oh, he sat at that table. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I saw him. Should I go up and say hi to him? What do I do? So I, I thought of a thing. I went up to him and said hi, and, and he kind of looked at me, and, and I said, don't worry, uh, no hard feelings. Everything's uh, good on my end here. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. And I, when I shook his hand, I had all the silverware stuffed up my sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> and I let it go, man. It just clanged on the floor really, really loud and uh, made all this noise. And I was hoping, oh, my God, I hope he laughs. I hope he laughs. And, uh, yeah, he started busting out. But oh, I stole all his silverware. It was that, uh, that show was quite an experience. Uh, and uh, for people who, for did, who didn't see it, which was most of uh, America. Yeah, actually, you know what? A lot of people saw it because a lot of people still come up to me and say, you know what? When I was a little kid, and I stop them right there and, go, and I say, um, I, I, I never touched you. For <laughs> But they come up to me and they say, when I was a little kid, I used to watch Ruckus with my mom and dad. And then I get a lot of that. You know, people, they grew up on that show. Oh, that's you know, funny. Even though it was only on for like two and a half days. Yeah. You know, those were the two and a half days that they grew up on. And, um, <laughs> ah, a lot of people have seen that show. I have, I have, that's probably the most fun I've ever had in, 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 in the course of uh I don't know how long we did it, but uh, that was the most fun. We had it made there, man. We did. We had 65 episodes. We used to write it in Los Angeles, and then we would fly to, to New Jersey and then try to resurrect the things we'd written in Las Vegas, yeah, Los we, Angeles. We, yeah, we would rewrite it. Uh, in the course <laughs> of a night or two, we would we would sit up in my suite and always had the writers' meetings and uh, order everything for free. <laughs> That's right. Giant platters of shrimp, I remember. Oh, yeah. I remember ordering lobster and taking it down to the boardwalk and giving it to bums just so <laughs> I <laughs> And then acting surprised when they when they called me into the office and showed me the uh, expense account for that. For the... <laughs> well, remember uh, um, one of your, your assistants, Michael, showed us all how to, how to rig the movie boxes so we, we could get movies in our rooms? Yeah. An alligator clip. Yeah. Uh, well, why an alligator clip on each side? And then there, was have, a, then there was a panic one day because the Spectre Vision police had shown up. That's right. The Spectre, Spectre police, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Everybody's really quickly uh, taking that off the back of the TV and panicking, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were serious, man. We, 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 we probably cost them a fortune. They, <laughs> Spectre Vision, who later went on to become uh, nobody. <laughs> That's right, but uh, you and I go back. They jumped on. Way. They jumped on. They you jumped on the wrong bandwagon. <laughs> uh, you and I go uh, way back before that, when you were uh, in San Francisco and I was in San Francisco, uh, doing comedy. Yeah, you, you think I would have hired different? 
<laughs> I know, I know. Uh, but you know what? I was just looking for uh, this last week when I knew I was going to be interviewing you because I would love to put this up on the blog site that goes with my podcast. Was uh, we'd written that movie, uh, Night of the Comic? I haven't. And but then we did that little tiny piece that we did for Fox right. Television, the trailer. Yeah, it was it was a it was a funny thing that was actually came out real. It's like one of your one of your stupid one of our stupid ideas that that actually had a budget. Yes. <laughs> they rented a whole neighborhood in Hollywood and smoke machined, you know, hazed the whole neighborhood. And I'm like, wow, this is serious. I really I made it. It until I saw that that I realized that they were really going to make it. I was. It came out really, really, really good too. Yeah, and I've got it. I've got the recording around here somewhere. I would love to put that up. I was uh, looking around for it, but I can't. It's in a box somewhere. But, uh, um, but you do have a copy. I do have a copy somewhere. I had it on VHS, oh. and I think I bumped it to DVD some somewhere along the line. But uh, I don't know where it is. I'll find it. You said you have a copy of it. I do, but mine's still on eight track. <laughs> <laughs> the original flip book. <laughs> So, Jonathan, just uh, for for my listeners who may not be uh, that familiar with you, um, and you re- and you know, you recently did my podcast. I I play clips of other people's comedy podcasts, right? So I'm really sort of in the business of promoting the idea of podcasts uh, in general. Um, so I'm hoping most people caught you on Mark Maron's show because I thought it was a really good interview. I don't know how the experience was for you. Yeah, yeah, that Mark Mark does a good job, and uh, yeah, we talked about. Uh, a lot of stuff. A lot yeah. of, he gets you talking about things that you, you, you really want to talk about, actually. Yeah. Um, and I thought, I thought I don't want to cover a lot of ground that he's covered because it was very recent. But uh, you and I you know, know each other pretty well, so I thought we could get into some, some elements maybe that most people don't know about. Like um, uh, when you first start out in comedy, it's, to me, it's, it equates a lot to people that are just starting out doing podcasts. You know, it's kind of a new medium. Uh, people are trying to find their voice in this new medium. So what, what was it like for you as you were starting out, you know, uh, segueing from doing sort of magic to bringing it into a whole sort of comedy realm? What was it to, you were really establishing a new sort of comedy form, really? Yeah, I was pretty accidental the way. I mean, I was on the street. I was a street performer in San Francisco where you live. And uh, I had to break into the comedy club somehow or fade away, you know. And the police kind of took care of that by <laughs> by arresting me all the time. So every time I went on the street, um, well, I had met Harry Anderson, first of all. Harry's the one who got me started in, in comedy. What, after seeing what Harry could do on the street, I was like, that that works. Yeah. You know, he he had, I remember um, doing my show and going to get a sandwich and uh, him coming back, or me coming back and my whole entire uh, show was packed up. He packed <laughs> the show up. And, uh, and and he was doing a spot in my our, our spot in my where I usually do it, and I'm like, "What an asshole!" You know? <laughs> I kick his ass. So I went over there, and I, I just said, "I'm gonna wait a second. And then he got a crowd going, and he got like 200 people standing there, and I was like, "Wow, this is how you do it. This is how you know adding comedy to it. I never thought about that." Um, so I watched him, and then talked to him afterwards, and he kind of took me under his wing and showed me. How to uh, how to pass the hat and you know how to uh, inject a little comedy, and then from that point, 
A. Whitney Brown took me under his wing and, and gave me the rest of my training, hanging out with A. Whitney Brown, who was on, on Saturday Night Live away in the future. Um, uh, he, he was great out on the street. You know, he was, you couldn't top A. Whitney. You know, you know A. Whitney, and he's brilliant. Very well. Yeah, and it's funny because both Harry and Whitney have a predilection for kind of being con men. As particularly yeah. Harry, you know, and it really does lend itself well to that sort of dealing with people on the street, talking yourself out of situations. And I think you picked up a lot of that stuff, although that wasn't really kind of in your DNA at the time, right? No, not at all. Um, I wasn't. I mean, the only reason they were laughing for me was because I was so bad, you know, um, I would get I would get, um, you know, if we're, you're working on the street and you don't get heckled, you get beat up. So. <laughs> I remember getting beat up really bad on the street. That's one of the reasons I got off the street was because we were playing Fisherman's Wharf, and uh, there was all those. Uh, um, can I say black? Yes. Okay. There was all these black kids, and um, they just beat the hell out of us with chains. You know, uh, they they attacked us for our money. You know, and um, I don't want to be like, oh, we're not going to be like Opie and Anthony now. <laughs> Because they put black and chains in the same sentence. Yeah, no, the, no, nobody can do anything with my podcast, so don't worry about it. There's there's no network, there's no executives, there's no money or commercials, so we're safe. So you segued into working the clubs, and that's really where you and no, I... There weren't even segues at that time. We had to walk. <laughs> but, I mean, that's really how how you and I met, because I was booking for Fox Productions. So I was booking The Punchline and Rooster Teeth Feathers. That's right. That's so, right. So our paths started to cross because, we, you know, we were always looking for the, the newest faces in San Francisco that could get laughs. And you were doing, like I said, you had sort of pioneered this sort of new kind of comedy. Whitney was doing the clubs, but he wasn't doing magic. No, it, I just, yeah, I just, the, the reason I got my style was because on the street you have to move along so fast or you lose your crowd. So I would keep the pace going at, at a breakneck speed so just so that I wouldn't lose my crowd. And that taken into a nightclub created a whole new kind of energy you know the only one with my kind of energy back then were Shields and Yarnell and they were mimes so you know away with them (laughs) (laughs) you know what John Fox speaking of which John Fox is the guy who gave me my first big break Um, he took me and three other comedians I can't remember who they were I remember Will Durst was one of them took us to the improv in Los Angeles. He had a job, to, he, he had an offer to uh, showcase three San Francisco comics and he picked me as being the variety one. And it was me and Will Durst and I can't remember who else. We went to the improv, uh, Bud Freeman was there and we did a showcase for uh, the industry that night and that, ha- that happened to be the night that HBO Young Comedian special uh, were there wow. and as well as the, the um, Think of the Night yeah. Remember that? Sure, that, with you know, Alan Thick, yeah. That's right, and David Letterman. And for that one night, I got three major TV shows. <laughs> wow. I know. I mean, that was big time. I mean, to get all, all of your big breaks in one night, you know. So um, I killed that night, and afterwards, I got all three of those shows. That's great. That's great. Right. Um, yeah. How do you start a career after that? <laughs> Well, is that real? I mean, that's really kind of the the springboard then to you beginning to really work on a national basis. Because up till then, you'd really kind of been in San Francisco, where you really kind of cut your teeth, and then that really I did comedy kind of, tonight. I did comedy tonight with uh, 
Alex, uh, what's his name? Oh, Alex, Alex Bennett. Alex Bennett. Alex Bennett used to do a show. That was the only show I've done up until then was that Comedy Tonight. And that, that was a PBS uh, comedy special. And that's the only show I'd done other, prior to that night, you know. Yeah. So that was the launching. Yeah, that was the launching night uh, being at the Improv in L.A. So I mean, people say, when was your, can you pinpoint your, and a lot of guys go, well, yeah, it was a combination of million TV shows. Well, it wasn't. It was, that night was the night that, that America heard of Amazing Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, now, have you always used the, the handle, the Amazing Jonathan? Because, I, I mean, your, your, your given name is Jonathan Zealous, but it seems to me, since I've known you, it really you've had that Amazing Jonathan handle. And how did, how did you come by it? Yeah, that didn't keep me back at all, did it? <laughs> <laughs> then my new movie with Robert De Niro and the amazing Jonathan. Yeah, <laughs> that will happen soon. Just keep waiting. Uh, I, apparently, I wanted to go home early that night when it came to naming myself, and I didn't put much thought into it. So, um, the amazing, yeah, that's a great one for a magician. That was uh, that was that was clever. But it's amazing that it's. I mean, it really has stuck as your handle. It has stuck as my handle. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to say, but uh, yeah, it kind of helped me out along the lines of, of people going, "Oh, the I remember the." You know, when people started remembering the Amazing Jonathan, is by me putting that name on the backdrop of a Comedy Central special. Um, people after that special, people went from, "Hey, you're that guy," to, "Hey, you're the Amazing Jonathan." So. By putting that on the theater marquee behind me on a set, um, so the whole special, they were seeing that name, it, it kind of burned it in their brains. And after that one special, people knew my name, as opposed to, hey, you're that fat dickhead with a headband. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's always kind of funny, almost inadvertent marketing like that. You know, uh, Dana Carvey's special he did in 97, he, he purposely called... Critics' Choice colon Dana Carvey because he always wanted to see it show up in TV Guide as Critics' Choice Dana Carvey like it had been a, a review of the show. Yeah, that's good. I could have done four star amazing four star amazing Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> four star. What, was there was there ever a time in the development of of your act and what you were doing where you thought maybe I'll move yes. away from the. <laughs> maybe I move away from the magic part of this um, or was that always sort of you know part and parcel of what you were going to be doing for people I think that from day one people thought I was trying to move away from the magic thing <laughs> <laughs> but, were um, you, but were you I mean did you ever go out without any props did you ever just do, try and do straight stand up yeah one, one time at the other cafe I said I'm going to try to do this. A. Whitney, I think A. Whitney talked me into it as a stupid bet, knowing that I would uh, tank, you know, because A. Whitney was like that. He would bet. <laughs> A. Whitney would put you in situations that you never wanted to be in, and, uh, and it always worked out. It always was a good exercise. That's what he always called it, a good exercise. <laughs> um, I remember one time that we were at the Union Square, and he – we were parking underground, and he, I gave him money. He didn't have enough money to park, so I think it was like a dollar to two dollars. I gave him a 20, and he got the change, but he knew I didn't see him get the change and said to the guy, keep the change. <laughs> so I said, I just gave you a 20. You just gave him like $18. He says, no, you gave me a five. And I said, no, I gave, him, I gave you a 20. 
So he made me go back and fight with the guy. <laughs> uh, literally, it almost came down to a fist fight. And, 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 and then Whitney pulls, up, pulls around in the van and says, come on. I was just kidding. I gave, I, you know, and I was like, oh, you, you asshole. He would get me in situations like that. <laughs> and that's, I think, where I got that sense of humor. and that, that I got it from Whitney. I, all, all the practical joking ability and everything came from Whitney. And, uh, yeah, I think that that's... Uh, Whitney, Whitney was responsible for getting me, uh, getting me the way I am. Yeah. yeah, he got a lot of people in trouble. I remember he and I, he and I were sitting up on the roof of the, the comedy condo in Seattle one time when he was headlining up there. We were eating a watermelon we'd gotten from That's the funny. farmer's market. And he goes, hey, Mark, I think I can throw this into the dumpster down in the alley. And so, so he heaves it over the edge and it goes through the back window of a store. On the back of the alley, goes. We gotta run for it. <laughs> he made that into a whole bit. You were with him during that, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the same uh, trip that yeah. uh, that um, uh, Jeremy Kramer got arrested by the cops for knocking over some silverware at a restaurant across the street. <laughs> you know, he remember when he got talk Warren Thomas into going and digging up a treasure? Yes, he found a treasure map <laughs> that he had made. And convinced Warren Thomas that it was a real treasure map, but he had to work. And if he went and dug that up, he could have half the treasure. And he went all the way up to Mount Tam <laughs> and started trying to dig and find his treasure. That Whitney, Whitney was great. He was brilliant, man. Oh man, he was so he was so fucking clever. So far out of his time. Yeah. Have you ever talked to Whitney now? I did. You know, I saw him. You know, we got uh, Pitta does a show in Mill Valley every week, and has for the last ten years at this theater up here. And uh, Whitney came through town a couple of years ago, and it was him and Jeremy Kramer uh, backstage, actually. So that was the last time I, I saw him. But he's he's still he got married recently, and he's uh, I guess he's just sort of taking it easy and living off his SNL money or something. But yeah, man, uh, yeah, I, I talked to his ex-wife. Uh, she sent me an eight by ten. Oh, where is it? I got to show you this. She sent me an eight by ten of myself because she took my very first promo shots. Oh, okay. And I got a, a very first date by ten of myself in the mail, and I was like, "Oh my God, I wish I looked like that now." But uh, yeah, she took my first date by tens, and if I looked like that now, I'd get mad pussy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when did you go from? Well, the the uh, the ruckus show was in ninety one. Is that right? Ninety one, ninety two. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere in there. Yeah. And then fr from so, the, from the, I always tell people it was the most expensive local TV show ever produced because it only aired on uh, WNBC in New right. York. Right, right. But then it aired on the on the Game Show Network. Yes. Game show. Yeah, that's true. And that that's what gave me my big break. Oh, when it was <laughs> when it was on the Game Show Network. That show would never, never give me my big break. But you know what? We were ahead of our time on that show. We had, we had a lot of stuff on that show that other shows later went on to do, you know? Uh, Merv was definitely a, a very forward-thinking guy, and then that combined with your ability to come up with some of the, the craziest stunts and that we would do, and then you always had a different magic trick for every episode. We did 65 episodes. and you I know we did, and it's, it's called... We, we stretched that dollar, man. We stretched that dollar. We... we <laughs> I remember having a budget to buy any clothing I wanted. 
<laughs> Do you remember all those jackets I had? Yeah, I was with so, the, yeah, with the weird double lapels. And <laughs> yeah, it was some company in New York that I found that made the ugliest jackets in, in the world, and I thought they were the coolest. They all look like Willy Wonka jackets. And um, I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to have a lot of nice jackets. When, but then every time a contestant won who had blueberry, blueberry pie all over their face, they would hug me and ruin the jacket. And I, I think I got to keep about two of those jackets. Oh, that's funny. I remember we, we had the opportunity to buy a conveyor belt at yes. one point. So we started coming up with every gag we could for a conveyor yes, belt bit. It was, it was expensive even for Merv in those days to have a conveyor belt. <laughs> so every show for like two weeks had a conveyor belt bit in it. And every show had food that we would ruin. And then finally we got so many letters of complaint that we were wasting so much food that Merv made, <laughs> made us stop writing food gags. Do you remember... <laughs> Do you remember the letters of complaint we sent out? We got in trouble. With the quarters? Yes. We, we, people would complain, and we'd tape a quarter to a piece of paper and say, call someone who gives a fuck. And Murph found out about that, remember? And he came out. And we, another one, we, we, we blew up, we tape a needle to it and said, cry, baby, cry, stick a needle in your eyes. And we were sending those out. We were sending them and the weirdest yeah. thing was that Merv was at every rehearsal for every he never, show. He never missed a rehearsal or a show in 65 episodes. He was there because he was having a blast like we were. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember waking up in the morning and, and for, for rehearsals and being excited to, to wake up. That's the only time, aside from Christmas when I was little, that was the only, maybe in my dealer coming over uh, later <laughs> in life. Those are the only times I've been excited about getting up in the morning, you know. He would come up with he would come up with the funniest, weirdest stuff. Like one day he just made this declaration that people love twins. We have to do something with twins because people love twins. <laughs> yeah, he would make that shit up, wouldn't he? Ooh, <laughs> twins. That's because he probably had a dream about two twin guys doing them. Probably, but remember we we actually came up with a bit because there were two there were identical twins in the audience one one oh, day. Oh, we had a blast with twins. And we did that uh, that quick change game where we had a, a girl and a guy changing. They had to go behind the screen and change sweat clothes. That's and we, right. And, yeah. we, and we had the one, twin brothers. Right. So one would, go, one would go back behind the thing. The other one would immediately come out and change an outfit. And nobody could beat that guy's time. You know, that was so much fun. And then, do you remember the one we were, the, the, the game was how many blocks they could stack on top of each other? Yeah. You yeah. came up with that one. And then you had it where we, someone was under the table, secretly under the table, pushing a dowel rod up through my blocks. Yes. My blocks all had a hole drilled, and I, I would always get more black than that guy. You know. Yeah. It was, we, yeah. We and then we finally yeah, had to start, we, 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 were had, we had to keep revealing the trick because we couldn't steal it. We couldn't actually win the the games. <laughs> Right, the gaming commission. The gaming commission came down on our asses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's why we had all the stooge stuff, the ultimate blindfold, and all that stuff. I'll actually probably put a clip of the ultimate blindfold on the blog for this, so people yeah, can see what we're talking about. Blindfold was actually, I think I, that was a gag I did in my real show with Mike Letty. Right. I took a lot of stuff from my real show and, and incorporated it into the first maybe ten episodes of Ruckus, uh, and then after that we were flying, flying blind on that. Yes. Yes. All the furniture we made out of pipe insulation that would melt. Remember? <laughs> yeah, we all we all we used was that uh, po polyurethane pipe to make everything. <laughs> yeah, it looks like table legs. You put it around pipes to keep them to keep them hot or cold, and we did, we did miracles with that stuff. Oh, it's fantastic. 
Yeah, so I think after Ruckus that, that happened, uh, I was real down and out because I had just lost my management, who was uh, at the time my agency, Spotlight. Oh, yeah. They were they, they were legendary for ripping. They were legendary. They had everybody. They had Jay Leno. They had myself. They had, uh, you name it. They had Dana Carvey. They had everybody in the world signed on. They went bankrupt. Uh, and they took all my money um, from Ruckus. Most of the money I made, at least half of the money I made on Ruckus, they took it. They owed me $300,000. Oh, man. And uh, they went bankrupt, and uh, I was counting on Ruckus to help put that money back uh, in my bank account. And when they tried to screw me out of two episodes, the money for two episodes, uh, they didn't air them, so they figured they didn't have to pay me for them. But my contract said, you know, if you make the episode, pay and play. Yeah. So they, so they tried to screw me right after my agency screwed me, and I said, okay, everybody's trying to screw me, and fuck this. So... Uh, I went into that old downward spiral of doing cocaine every day and uh, walked off the show, uh, and uh, that's when the show ended, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was. So I, don't know, I don't know whether the show was going to get picked up or not, and I didn't care to find out. Uh, I just took off, and then, then I found out that uh, they said it was going to go, it was being picked up, and I said, oh, that sucks. Huh. Yeah, that's. <laughs> and then, that's not what I heard because, uh, you know, we did 65 episodes and they could not sell it to any other TV station to save their no, lives. They couldn't. They couldn't sell it, but they, they, they couldn't syndicate it. But he had some, he, was, he had a last ditch effort coming through that they were going to do it for somebody else. And, and he was going to recoup some of his money because he lost millions on that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I said, well, good luck to him. And I, got, I remember you guys still writing episodes after I had quit. Well, yeah, they switched gears and we were doing a thing called, remember we had that one segment at the end called Reach for the Stars. It was that kind of speed round thing. And uh, people would have to like take stars off a board and do stuff. And so he came up with yeah. an idea of doing a whole show around that and it just didn't fly. Just nothing. No, because that was already a show, you know? Yeah. He already reached for the stars, but little did he know that. He had hired a bunch of midgets for this last one. <laughs> There's no, there was no reaching for any stars that they could get. So, uh, so what did, so, so what did you, what did you take off to do at that point? Because you and I kind of lost okay. touch. I, I think. Oh, there you go. Yeah, uh, that's. That, it. I, got, I went into a real downward jag on that one. I, I did a lot of drugs after that, and uh, I had to. Since the agency went bankrupt, I had to go out and do dates that already were paid for. Uh, I didn't get money for them. I had to the dates. They collected deposits from all these comedy clubs, and I was stuck going out and doing all those. Oh, so man. that's what I did. I, went, I was out doing dates for money, for no money, and doing a lot of drugs. And finally, uh, you know, that that will get you nowhere. I mean, yeah. some some comics that is that work. Um, so is that is that when you started making the move towards Vegas and setting up kind of a permanent show? No, that that happened long afterwards. Uh, I had gotten married after that. I got married, and uh, um, I just went and did a bunch of comedy clubs. I started doing bigger and bigger venues and, and, and kept doing television. Uh, I did Letterman, and, and, and I, I remember I flipped that guy off I, on Letterman. I remember when you got, the, you got a framed picture in the mail of, you, huh, yeah. uh, of that frame of you flipping the camera off. Yeah, I flipped. I made a bet with the DJ that I wouldn't flip him off at some point during Letterman. Yeah. And uh, I got caught. I got caught because, you know, when you do that in a group of people in a photo, you can't really see your your middle finger scratching your, your nose. 
but they, you know, when you're on a camera, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, they, they all, saw it. Yeah. All America saw it. Uh, so the producer thought I was doing it to him uh, personally and wouldn't believe me that it was a bet. And I said, you'll never be on this show again. And uh, he was right for about 10 years. <laughs> and then uh, David Letterman saw my Comedy Central special that I had just uh, shot and wanted me to come on the special and personally called me, which was weird, to say he wants me on the show. And um, I thought that was really weird, but I didn't know if he remembered that I was already on the show before. But when I walk out on my second appearance, you see me laugh. And the reason I'm laughing is because he stood up uh, and flipped me off. Because <laughs> I was coming out. Yeah, he, he actually stood up and did one of these, you know, with both hands and flipped me off. <laughs> But then, this is the weird part. Every time we do Letterman, something weird happens. The first time was the flipping off incident. This time, I killed. Mark, I did the best comedy set ever on Letterman. I just destroyed. And I was in my dressing room, just uh, just as happy as could be. And the producer came back, the new producer, because he had fired Robert Morton. Yeah. And that's why I was back on again, because Morton wasn't around. And he came back and said, we can't air your set. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well... You know, I stabbed the girl in the head with scissors was the bit I did. Yes. Which, uh, and David, David freaked out. And, it's, and he said, David wants to see you up in his office. And then I said, why? And he says, I don't know. And he never wants to see anybody up in his office, but you better go. So I, I was escorted up to his office. And he's, he, he said to me, we can't air that set. It was too violent. Uh, he says, I have a real strong position against violence towards women. And I said, well, yeah, so do I, but that's slapstick you just saw. And he said, no, 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 no. So I, I told him, I said, this is a real dangerous precedent you're setting here. You know, you're killing slapstick. Because if it was, wasn't a girl, you would have no problem with it. Yeah. And he's, so he, I had to go back out. He said, I'll hold the audience for 15 minutes. If you can go back out and do another set, then we'll air it. And I said, I don't have, I'm a prop comic. I don't have another set. So I ran around just, Mike Letty just happened to show up out of the blue, who was working with us on Ruckus. Yeah. He showed up out of the blue and helped me get props together, saving my ass again. And uh, I did another set that was half as funny as the first one, you know. So that's, that's my second letterman. And then I told myself I'll never do this show again. And when I was at, I did, uh, what's that big casino in, in Connecticut? Um, oh, it's that- like... Uh, big, the, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, something wood. Something. Yeah, uh, oak woods or something like that or something. Uh, anyway, they told me that Letterman snuck in the back door and was at my show watching. <laughs> so <laughs> wow. I called. I called him up the next day and said, "Did you sneak out of my show without saying hi?" He went, "Yeah, I snuck in. I didn't want the crowd." Yeah, so he actually snuck into to Oakwood. Oh, what was the name of that damn casino? Yeah, now that's going to bug me. Um, so, yeah, so that was my third Letterman experience. He snuck in the audience. He was actually, he told me nobody's a bigger fan of yours than I am. That's what he said. Isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah. So that was a cool thing to hear. Wow. Two things in my life, two things in my life that, that justified my, my, my being was <laughs> that. And the other one was George Carlin called me out of the blue uh, after my show in Vegas and went on for a half hour raving about how much he loved my show and why this is funny and why this works. And he dissected my entire show. I don't know if he was stoned or what, but he just <laughs> on and on. This message never ended. And I became friends with him from that, you know. Uh, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So if you get George Carlin and David Letterman, 
uh, and they're major fans of your work, then there's nothing anybody can really say to you that, that will throw you off your mark, you know? That's true. That's yeah. true. Now, at one point, you'd become, I remember just hearing this, but you'd become pretty big in Australia, right? I mean, you were doing a lot of TV down there. That's right. My wife, my wife who I met uh, was Australia. She she was Australian. She was Australian. That's a big she, that's she a big close. woman. <laughs> How was her Ayers Rock? That's what I want to know. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, she was all of Australia. So, um, yeah, I met I met her and, and got married and lived there on and off for about five years and did a TV show that would be the equivalent to Saturday Night Live out here called Hey Hey. It's Saturday. I got to be pretty famous in Australia for being on that show and doing doing a tour of Australia. You, you know, I did Australia, and people the first time I did it, people were coming up to me and going, "You're legendary. You're legendary here in Australia." And I was really flattered until some guy's dog caught a frisbee, and and he said, "My dog is legendary." I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, I get it. Everything's legend. This food's legendary. Everything's legendary." So <laughs> that's like the English saying, "You're brilliant." That's right, yeah, yeah. And so, well, they did say I was brilliant, did they? God damn it. Um, yeah, so I started making bases all around the world. I started traveling and doing, getting, because, you know, I figured if the comedy was falling out in the United States, then I could go to other countries and become, you know, reasonably known. And, and I was. I mean, I did that World's Wildest Magic special on NBC, which was aired in 65 countries. I started getting a, an international fan base. And, uh, you know, fuck the United States if, if, they, if they didn't, you know, if they went under. Like, and, and I was married to Australia. What was I worried? <laughs> <laughs> My wife was Australian. So, <laughs> so then what, uh, what then led you to Vegas after? Okay, here's what happened. I got, my, my wife wanted a divorce. I bought her a, uh, I played Vegas. I started playing on and off, not full time, but just I played at the Sahara for like two or three months at a time. And I kept getting held over because the crowds were getting big. And uh, so my wife, on one of the trips home, I bought her a Porsche, a 65 Porsche Speedster for her, for, for her birthday and Valentine's Day. And I had a gift wrapped in the driveway. And she told me that she wanted a divorce on the way home. Oh my God. Yeah, and I had this car waiting for her. And I said, oh no, you picked her on time. Any other time? Um, but I said, I called my friend and said, drive the car out of there. Get it out of there. She wants a divorce. It came out of the blue. I didn't know why. And um, so that was the biggest blow to my entire life was the fact that my wife wanted to leave me. And out of the, she wouldn't tell me why. She wouldn't tell me anything. She hmm. just went back to Australia. So uh, here comes that downward spiral thing. I recognized it from Ruckus. And uh, I saw it looming in the distance. And... Uh, I started doing drugs again and doing them really hardcore, and because I had just lost my wife and uh, and I, I was going to quit the business. I, I was going to get get right out of the business. Uh, I decided I've had enough. You know, this is enough. Yeah. Um. So then I got a call. Just as I had quit doing doing stand up or doing comedy, I got a call from Vegas and they wanted me to do a fill-in for David Brenner, a two-week fill-in at the Golden Nugget downtown. Oh, I, I went, okay, I'm, one last show. So I went and did the two weeks and we sold out every single night downtown, which is unheard of because downtown 
Vegas was dead at that time. There was no, nothing down there. Huh. No, no entertainment was down there. They, they moved all to the strip. Yeah. We were selling out every single night, 500 seats. We were selling out. I had no idea why. It was a combination of every show I had done up until that point that had made my career actually uh, give me a drawing, drawing power. So I, they, they got rid of, eventually they got rid of David Brenner and they kept me. And um, I was there at the Gold Nugget for two years and we sold out almost every single night, 500 seats. Wow. And that, the press called me the savior of downtown. Uh, that's why I remember being called that. And uh, I, I got best act of the year in Vegas. I got all these awards just for doing what I always do, you know. And uh, it picked my spirits up. Uh, yeah, I'll bet. that's great. Yeah, in three million a year, considerably picked my spirits up and made me forget about my my ex-wife. Yeah. Uh, and she went back down to hell where she she was thrown. <laughs> Apparently, Satan was having a, a rough time dealing with everybody down there, so he got her to go down and help. And um, and I started making three million a year. So for two years, I pulled in about six million dollars. And uh, then the Flamingo made me an offer to go down to the Strip. They, they lured me away with a better offer, and I left the Gold Nugget to do the Strip. And then 13 years later, I was still in Vegas. You know, wow! Uh, longest running comedy magic act in the history of Las Vegas. Well, 13 years, man. That's amazing. Yeah. So in that time. I didn't do any road work. I didn't do anything. I stayed in Vegas, made a name for myself, bought a, a huge house, bought 27 classic cars, uh, just had a riot. I had the best time of my life, almost as fun as ruckus. <laughs> it was great. Uh, I had I lived at the casino for, for for a long time. Had signing privileges. You know, it was just uh, it was. Uh, I've had an incredible life uh, because of that. Topping off my life. You know, I just. It was amazing. The whole thing's been a wild ride, and I wouldn't trade a second of it for anything. You know, it's been really, really great. Yeah. I've got everything I've, I've got everything I, uh, I ever wanted. I really did. So I'm I'm as happy as can be. Uh, and you recently announced your your retirement. Then <laughs> <laughs> he shot himself in the head. It was the weirdest thing. It was, it was the just... last interview. <laughs> But then uh, you, you recently announced your retirement from live performance. Retirement from life. <laughs> yeah. I found out I had a heart condition. And uh, I found that out about six years ago, uh, even longer than that, I think, that I had a heart condition and, and that it was terminal. And it's called cardiomyopathy, and it's, it gets worse and worse. Well, it didn't get worse and worse. I actually uh, got better and improved. And somehow uh, my heart healed itself and maybe it was the millions of dollars I was making <laughs> but uh, yeah I got better so I thought okay I'm out of the woods and just uh, this year it came back uh, with a vengeance so that's what I got to deal with now you know I got to deal with uh, my heart so I decided that I was going to quit because my heart's not pumping uh, blood to my fingers and my feet and it's real painful and it's like uh, I can't do the show hardly anymore. My legs would lock up on me during my last few shows. I would um, circulation's bad, breathing's bad. So I decided, well, I'm gonna just quit. Now is the time to, to stop doing this and uh, start concentrating on my health a little bit. So that's why I retired to, to see if I can work and get get my heart back up to what it was. For, you know, the first time I did it, maybe I can do it again. But it doesn't look real good. 
Um, what sort of prognosis are, are you dealing with at this point? Well, the, first of all, I have to go look up the word prognosis. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm, dealing, I'm dealing with if this medication doesn't work for you, then you have about a year. You know, so that's what I'm dealing with. And the medicine, medicine uh, sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't work. So uh, I here's here's the deal. I don't feel like I'm going to die. So I, I feel, at most of the time, I feel pretty normal. Um, uh, see this here. This is uh, called a morphine patch. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's dealing with the pain, and but but I mean I, I can't get open heart surgery. I can't get a transplant because I'm diabetic, mm. and they won't put me on the list. And I, I and there's another operation I could have that I don't want to have. You know, I, I just don't want I don't want to bother because I don't want to have that kind of lifestyle. I'm, I've lived getting everything I wanted. Basically, I, I've always had what I, whatever I want. I know people hate to hear that, but. I've had a really lucky life, and I've done a lot of great. I've lived five lifetimes. You know, you know what I've been doing for yeah. a lot of that. Yeah. I've lived. I shouldn't be here right now. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people that won money on me on the death pool. <laughs> money at me. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they just come up on the street and spit in my face. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> just That's, out of sheer jealousy. Yeah, no, they lost money on the death pool. <laughs> now you are doing sort of a version of a podcast, though. Uh, I assume you're still in production with Burn Unit, right? Yeah, I still work. I mean, I still I stopped doing my last final show it was only about a month ago at the Magic Castle. I wanted to end my run and did my last uh, show for the public uh, at the castle. So, yes, yeah, so I've been retired officially for uh, exactly a month, and uh, I'm. I, I feel all right, you know, I feel fine. But since it's a heart thing, it could happen at any second. I could have a heart attack. Like I was swimming today in the pool and I started throwing up violently all, all out of the blue, you know, which wow. I don't ever do. I don't, I don't like throwing up. I would always put that off. It's <laughs> already to me to not do that. You know, and, and there's been plenty of times when I've had to, you know, really work at that. But like, and I just out of the blue start throwing up. And uh, so, I've had to, you know, if I do that during a show, it's not going to be real fun. Don't think it's a joke, but it's not. You know? Yeah, yeah. It fits right in with my show, all the, all the symptoms. If I died on stage, no one would come to help me. They were all <laughs> part think, of my birth. Yeah. You know, so, so I've it, had to deal. So, so is, is there anything that, that you, you do want to uh, still accomplish? Maybe you've you retired from performance, but now you've got you know some, some time to yourself. Is there things you've wanted to do that now you've got the time to do it because you're not locked into a performance contract? You would think. <laughs> um, no, I do the podcast. I, I did the podcast before I was diagnosed, but um, now, you know what? I've done it all. I'm, I'm ready to go, to tell you the truth. You know, I, I've, I just got married, which is one reason to stick around. I just got married, and I, I, I got a great wife and a kid now, um, a 14-year-old kid, and, and they're great. And I, that's probably the, the only reason I would want to stick around, you know. Other than that, I think I've done everything that I wanted to do. I, I, you know, I didn't get a, a hit TV show, but I had two shows that weren't hits, and uh, I, got the, I got the gist of it. Yeah. I got the gist of it. I got um, semblance of fame. You know, people come up. I, I, if I stay in Vegas, I, people come up to me on the street all the time, and 
I can't I can't go anywhere without being recognized if I'm in Vegas. <laughs> uh, and you are the only amazing Jonathan. So yeah. <laughs> for for better or for worse, you you ended up with a moniker that uh, certainly has uh, survived all this time. What I want to do, Mark, is and I, and I started this last night, uh, a new project, and that is to write a blog, being totally honest with what I've been doing and how I've done it. I wrote a book uh, about drug use, and, and, and it's the only book written with a positive spin on it, <laughs> and <laughs> everybody wants to publish this book that I've written because it has great stories, but they don't want to publish it because of the ending, and that is, the end. most books end like... You know, he had everything. He started doing drugs. He lost everything, and then he stopped doing drugs, and he got it all back. That's the way mine ended. <laughs> mine started with nothing. Started doing drugs, got everything, didn't stop doing drugs, and kept everything. <laughs> Nobody wants to publish that for some reason, and uh, so I decided, well, I'll do it myself on the internet. I don't need the money from a book, so I'll just be honest, and I'll. I, I think that what I'm going to do is write. Uh, once a, once a night, a story from one of one of my lurid drug stories, which I have millions of, <laughs> and uh, and start putting them on the internet and uh, being honest about about in my drug use and, and and how much fun it's been over the years and and how much it's got me and maybe it cost me a few things, but overall it's got me a lot of stuff. I've been blessed, so you know I, people go, well, how about the isn't it? because of the drug use that you're sick and you're dying. And I'm like, maybe, but, but maybe not, you know, maybe not. So, uh, yeah. So that was never part of the, the diagnosis. They didn't no, say they think that it's because I had a virus as a child. It's that, that that's affected my heart, you know, mm -hmm. because they're scarring on my heart. They said I've actually had a heart attack and I didn't know it. Oh. <laughs> and I, th that's me, isn't it? That's me all over. <laughs> you know, I didn't even realize it because he was partying too much. He just partied right through it. <laughs> The drug use probably revived you and kept you alive. I, you, you, it's funny you said that because one of my doctors told me when I first beat the, the illness, um, one of my doctors said, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because I've never seen a recovery from this disease before. And I, I got my heart beating from 12% from to uh, back up to normal. Wow. And that, that was during the drug use that I was doing. I mean, I don't do, I don't, I do no other drug other than I do speed once in a while. And... Um, if I want to work late at night, I'll do some speed, and, 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 and if I want to, like, watch TV, I'll do some speed, and if I want to, like, do, eat, I'll do some speed. Interview. <laughs> <laughs> I did speed. So, um, yeah, he said, whatever you're doing, keep doing it, which I took for a sign as, you know, yeah, keep doing it. So, But, uh, no, it's been, I don't think it's had, I don't think it's responsible for this. I don't really, I don't believe that. But, I mean, like, Someone told me if I ran into Sam Kennison that we would spontaneously combust. <laughs> I, I told Sam that when I met him, and it didn't happen. And so uh, I was here for a reason, you know, and yeah. uh, that was to make some dealer very rich. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, thanks so much for the time. Uh, I'm sorry that you're, you're going through the health issues and stuff, but you have lived a hell of a decent life. Oh, yeah, don't apologize for me, you know. I, 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 I had more than my share of the pie, Mark. And uh, it was a pleasure to, to have some of that pie with you along the way. Too. Yeah, and get it on my jacket so I can never wear it again. <laughs>
listen, buddy, I hope to run into you in person one of these days. I get to Vegas every once in a while. I'll look yeah, you up. when you're driving and I'm walking, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and let me know when that, uh, if you get that blog going because uh, we'll uh, definitely point people that way. I've already got it going, and you'll read the first. You're in the first. Uh, remember when you were doing coke off my penis? Remember that? <laughs> <now>? <laughs> All right, buddy. All right. I got one thing to say to you before I go, and that's oh. <laughs> Thanks, John. Take Later, care, buddy. Bye. I was so sorry to hear about uh, the amazing Jonathan's medical prognosis, and I got to tell you, he didn't look so good on our Skype call. He was wearing a horrible purple shirt. But he did change out of it. It was kind of a joke. Uh, but he he uh, he looks tired, uh, at least on Skype. So um, hopefully he'll, who knows, maybe he'll actually get better. It seems like nobody quite knows what's going on. I am going to embed that ultimate blindfold trick that I did with him on Ruckus that we were talking about in the interview. Um, so check out SuccotashShow.com and uh, look for the blog for this episode. And uh, I'll have that embedded from YouTube. So it's uh, it's the quality is pretty bad, but uh, you can certainly see it. And it is uh, pretty funny. Also, remember to check out Burn Unit, the amazing Jonathan's video cast, also on YouTube. So thanks again, Jonathan, for being on the show. Appreciate it. And hopefully I'll get a chance to see you before too long. Now, someone who was in the comedy clubs in San Francisco about the same time that Jonathan was starting out is our own Will Durst. In fact, Will can still be found there as well as in clubs around the country. But right now, we have him in our regular segment that I like to call the Burst O' Durst. In this edition, he's talking about the new iPhone. Hey guys, Will Durst here to say it's time to put on your shoes, shake off the blues, and tell Grandma the news. The next generation iPhones are here. Woohoo! And they're huge! Or not. You get to choose. The iPhone 6 Plus looks like they shrunk the mini pad, or tiny iPad, or whatever they call it. Is that an iPhone 6 Plus in your pocket, or are you just really, really happy to see me? Old folks are raising their prune juice and toast. They can finally see the buttons. On the small side, the iWatch is not the iWatch, it's the Apple Watch. Even though the company filed for trademark protection about a hundred markets for the right to call it the iWatch. Of course, the wrist-wearing computer won't become i-available until 2015. Or when the i-swatch freezes over, whichever comes first. The Android Galaxy Samsung contingent continues to flame away about how Apple has merely caught up to their smartphones, but methinks they doth protest too much. It's like Lexus owners bashing Acura drivers for finally getting contrasting leather stitching on their seats. Dude, they're different. Settle down. Who cares? Anyone who depends that much on a phone for their identity doesn't need a new phone. They need a life. Besides, the antipathy flows pretty much one way. Apple heads couldn't care less about the Androidites, which probably just heightens their frustration. Of course, the Apple community is so blindly loyal, they'd line up to buy the next iteration, even if the only new feature were a rotary dial. Used to be the hip phones would get smaller and smaller, but now we're headed towards a 19-inch model that comes with eye saddlebags on an eye pony to carry it around. Optional, of course. Then again, some of us will never be satisfied until we find the phone that will dry the dishes and do the laundry. Siri, are you down there? Don't forget to separate the colors. I swear, that girl would lose her head if it weren't pre-installed. For Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast, I'm Will Durst. Find raging moderate Will Durst at his home site, willdurst.com, and also tweeting at Will Durst 
on Twitter. Well, would you look at that? We have reached the end of Epi 95. My next full edition will feature an interview with Robert Campos and Donna Lo Cicero, the filmmakers behind the Three Still Standing documentary that's about to make its world premiere at the Mill Valley Film Festival. Now, I might just do one of my half-isodes between now and then, as I'll be motoring to Los Angeles this next week on the way to the L.A. Podcast Festival, so we'll see what we hear between now and then. In the meantime, won't you be so very kind as to pass the succotash? You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. You can also hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at marc at SuckatashShow.com. Or call into the Suckatash hotline at our non-toll-free call number, 818-921-7212. That number again is 818-921-7212. Suckatash is produced and engineered with the kind assistance of Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our associate producer is Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I am your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the succotash. Goodbye.